This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. We have a really fun guest for you today, Patrick Murphy. I'm going to read a little bit for those that don't know. Patrick Murphy is an American politician and attorney who served as the 32nd Undersecretary of the Army under President Obama. Referred to as the Soldier Secretary, Patrick currently serves as Senior Managing Director of Ancor Consulting in Philadelphia and as the Distinguished Chair of Innovation at the United States Military Academy. He's an Army veteran and the first Iraq veteran elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in Pennsylvania's 8th District in 2006. He's a Pennsylvanian born and raised and a former anchor of Taking the Hill on NBC. Patrick is passionate about veteran issues, which I have seen firsthand, especially as it relates to healthcare and employment. Welcome to The Resilient Life. Thanks, Ryan, so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think it's timely just given where we are as a nation. Um, I think our guests will be interested to hear kind of our connection and how um, we've become friends and, um, and I'm looking forward to just diving in more to your background. So let's, let's start there. So I wanted to start with your military background, but I think I actually want to bring it back to Pennsylvania born and raised, you know, you live probably less than 10 miles from me. Uh, you grew up in lower Bucks County and talk a little bit about your upbringing. You come from a, a great family who, uh, who served, who, who, you grew up in a life of service. So talk to us a little bit about what that looked like as a child growing up. Sure. So thanks for having me on. And, and yeah, I was, I'm blessed. I mean, my parents both believed in having a servant's heart. So my, my father uh, served in the Navy as enlisted and then spent 22 years as a Philadelphia police officer. Uh, and my uncles, uh, my uncle served and uh, in the military and also my one uncle served after being a paratrooper in the army uh, in the Philadelphia Police Department, I have cousins that still serve and cousins that serve in the military, uh, and, and my brother served. Uh, and my mother, she also believed in in service as well. I mean, she had service to our church. She was a Catholic nun. Um, she was a Macleod Mary uh, novice. Uh, luckily for me, my brother and sister, that she left the convent and eventually met my father. Of course. Uh, being a reformed politician, I used to joke uh, that she dumped Jesus for Jack Murphy. She does not like that version of the story because <laughs> she left the convent and then met my father. But uh, but we're we're devout Catholics, and and, uh, and my sister uh, is a public school teacher. Uh, she's been for decades now. My brother served two deployments in the Air Force after 9/11, uh, and is raising his family. Has five beautiful daughters, and uh, and I've been very blessed as well with with two kids. So uh, we all believe about community. Service to your community and also to your country. I think your family is really, you know, the perfect representation of of this area in the Northeast. Um, you know, 
a lot of teachers, a lot of police officers, a lot of people serving the armed forces. But I think even more than that is this connection to community. And you see that around Bucks County. A lot of times when I tell people where I'm from, I, I, I say, you know, Philadelphia area. But if you say Bucks County, a lot of times people know that because it's this bellwether county that always ends up on the national news around any big election because it's it's very evenly split in where people lie on their uh, political ideology. But the one thing that I think binds this county together more than anything is that there's a, there's a community feel. No matter if you're in Doylestown or if you're down in Bristol where you are, you get that feeling and that sense of community. And it's really driven into the entire county. Uh, and, and, you know, that was the, one of the things that we noticed as a family. And one of the reasons my dad chose to have a settle in Doylestown after he left active duty in the Marine Corps. So walk me through the decision. You did ROTC in college. And walk me through that decision because, you know, for those that don't know, you know, you enter into an ROTC program, you automatically know that when you're leaving college, you will be in the military, just like a service academy, uh, being in an ROTC program, you're going to serve your country for a certain number of years to really pay back for your college education. When was that decision made? Did you walk in as an ROTC recruit or did you uh, join in after you were in college? No, in fact, I right. I, I wasn't a great high school student. I was at Archbishop Ryan High School, which was the largest Catholic high school in the in the country uh, at the time. And I played hockey. I was I played hockey, and in my senior year, I had four jobs. I would deliver newspapers in the morning, and I worked a graveyard shift as a waiter on the weekends, and was a Eagle security guard. But I actually went to Bucks County Community College um, full time, and then transferred, like you said, uh, to a to a four-year college, King's College. It's a Catholic college in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. It's affiliated with Notre Dame, but they didn't have an ROTC program. And I actually didn't know what an officer versus enlisted was and how you became an officer, et cetera. But so my roommate and I joined Army ROTC through the University of Scranton. Um, uh, I was 19. It was back in 1993. And I'll never forget, I was dating a girl at the time, you know, who's happily married, by the way, to someone else for decades. But I was dating a girl from, from Yardley, Pennsylvania, in Bucks County. And um, her dad says to me, uh, Patrick, like, why would you join Army ROTC? This is back in 1993. It's after Desert Storm. And he's like, why, why would you join the Army? Like, you're in a dean's list at King's College. You're, you're the captain of hockey team as a sophomore. Like, why would you do this? And, and I said, well, sir, I want to serve. And he goes, well, like, but you don't have to. And I, yeah, I said, well, and I, I didn't understand why he was be against me becoming an officer in the army but i was like sir i'm gonna be a lieutenant in like two years like this is a big deal like yeah i'm gonna be a second lieutenant and have a chance to lead 40 men and women and uh i was very excited about it and uh at any rate um you know and it kind of goes to disconnect frankly in america i mean there's it's less than one percent of our generation who've served and you know little did i know that i'd be 17 years old at bucks county community college uh going full-time and, and working other jobs and then you know within 10 years being a you know earning my law degree and becoming an army officer and then, and frankly, teaching at West Point at that point. So for me, the army opened up so many doors uh, to be part of that uh, tradition of the United States Military Academy at West Point, you know, at, at age 27 to be a professor uh, teaching constitutional law, the, the first seized the seniors there. Uh, it was my first time ever at West Point. It was my first taste of it because I had already been like a federal uh, military prosecutor and uh, it was just an incredible eye-opening experience. It, it was one of those definitive moments in my life. And unfortunately though, 
I was there when 9-11 happened, uh, when our nation was attacked and, and thousands of innocent Americans were murdered. So, you know, I'd already been airborne in air assault school when I was getting ready for ranger school. And, um, I went into my boss's office uh, right after 9-11 happened and uh, on the next day, in fact, and said, hey, sir, like, you know, I want to go get in the fight. And uh, a few months later, I deployed under General Petraeus. Uh, it was the Bosnia at the time. And then I uh, came back home. It was reassigned uh, to the 82nd Airborne Division um, and down at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and then became part of the evasion force in Iraq. And I uh, was there in 2003 uh, and 2004. And, you know, that was another, you know, life-changing moment. You know, I had lost 19 men in my unit in, in Baghdad. And, you know, I came back home. And, uh, you know, I remember being, you know, there where we didn't have internet, we didn't have showers. It was, you know, it was an infantry unit. And, and uh we were in a Ford operating base and I remember, you know, you, you get the Star Stripes newspaper and stuff like that. But I remember hearing that they were going to try and cut our combat pay and stuff like that. And I was like, this is crazy. What's going on in Washington? So, um, so it kind of gave me a, uh, a, a viewpoint taste. that some folks in Washington just didn't get it and yeah. kind of bit a fire under me to maybe get involved in political public service at some point. I think you bring up some important points and, and it, the first is dating back to the conversation with your girlfriend's father at the time. And, and it's something that resonates so much with me. You know, th this misconception of people choose a life of service, of military service, because they have no other option. I, I will never forget after Travis was killed, we had a bunch of TV reporters show up at our house to interview and and we were very open at the time. I remember my dad said like I want to talk. I want people to know who Travis was and I want him I wanted people to know like the the caliber of the men and women that are over there serving and sacrificing. And I won't say his name because he's a a popular um local anchor uh in the Philadelphia area, but he walked into our home and he looked at my parents and he's like, "Oh, I I didn't realize that um Marines grew up in houses like this. And, you know, my dad did very well for himself at J&J. &J and, and my dad said, well, what do, you, what do you mean? My brother, my son was a first lieutenant in the Marine Corps. He went to the Naval Academy. Like, he, he chose what he wanted to do. And I think there is this misconception that people choose this life of military service because they have no other option. So it's like, well, you, you just go into the military. Where, in fact, the best and the brightest of our next generation are are deciding to take this leap into military service because they know, just like you, it's not only are they going to learn incredible fundamentals about leadership and service and a lot of things that just aren't taught today, but outside of that, it's going to open up so many doors for them as they either continue in their military career or move beyond it. Um, and I hope that's something that I think, I do think we've done a, pretty good job over the last several years of trying to break that misconception. And I think really the rest of the country is starting to recognize the invaluable assets that our men and women who serve are in their communities. But, um, you know, I mean, listen, you're, you're the perfect example, a kid that, you know, wasn't doing, wasn't the best in high school, went to community college, like pulled himself up from his bootstraps and, and followed this path. And, you know, to think 10 years later, like, could you imagine at 17 thinking I'm going to be teaching at West Point in 10 years? Like no one right. can envision no, that. Yeah. It's that. And to your point, Ryan, it's like, it was the military changed my life when I joined at 19. And, you know, I, I probably couldn't have picked 
Baghdad on a map, you know, at that point in my life, uh, or frankly, tools to Bosnia. Um, and people forget, like, you know, why were we in Bosnia? It was stop stopping the worst ethnic cleansing in Europe since World War II. There was tens of thousands of Muslims that were being killed just because of the religious beliefs. And it wasn't until American forces went in there and we put an end to it. And, and you know, for me, the military <clears throat> was just, just an awesome experience. And, and I'm a big believer in what General Mattis and others talk about. It's uh, post-traumatic growth. I mean, the, the military challenged me in ways and gave me this discipline. And, you know, I always kind of had that row house mentality because I grew up in a row house that, that you take care of the people on your left and your right to begin with. But but it just was super, it was just harnessed in the military. And then, you know, to, to be in, you know, a military academy. And I know you and I joke about, you know, the Naval Academy, you know, Army versus Navy, et cetera. And we joke like brothers and sisters, but, you know, these, these institutions uh, are these incredible leadership laboratories that just really harness just great generations uh, of military leaders and frankly, our country's leaders and our community leaders. So, um, to me, it's incredibly important, um, you know, part of my life. And, you know, I, I look at it, though, I mean, it's less than 1%, though, Ryan, that have served during the longest wars in American history. And we've really asked folks, and what, what I sometimes refer to as the, the warrior class in America. I mean, it's 78% of our troops that serve come from military families, that come from families like yours and, and like mine. And, um, and, you know, we're really proud about that. But you know, we're asking these folks to serve multiple deployments. I was talking recently with the head of the VFW, VJ uh, Lawrence. Um, he's a former army uh, uh, soldier. His two sons served, one in the Marine Corps, one in the army. Between his two sons, they've done 12 deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. We were asking these young men and women to serve multiple deployments time and time and time again. And, you know, some of them, you know, do fall through the cracks and we have this ethic, as you know, we leave the one behind, but some of them, you know, come out and they are just ready to, to conquer the world and, and really continue to give back and leave that life of service that they're accustomed to. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that's, um, one of the things that continues to come up uh, throughout uh, our nation is this idea of um, mandatory service, right? So not just in the military, but mandatory service, whether it's the Peace Corps or some other large service um, organization or the military is one. And I think, I mean, I'm a firm believer that I, I believe that in order to thrive as an individual, you have to understand what service is all about. And I think you look at today's generation and, you know, again, they're taking two very different paths. And um, we, we do. We joke about the, the Army-Navy um, rivalry. And it was funny because I was just sitting around with a group of veterans and it was all different service branches. I happened to be at a table with Air Force, Coast Guard, Army, Navy, and Marine. And the amount of ribbing that was going on and just giving it back to one another. And then finally the one guy said, you know what I always find funny that my I, I was with a guy and I was giving him crap because he was a Marine and this guy was in the, the army. And he said, and my wife turned to me and was like, hon, you know, you can't fight like that. And no one <laughs> understands, you know, the, the camaraderie. Like I kid with you all the time. Well, I say you kid with me. You're, you're always, you know, talking about the premier institution, West Point. But at the end of the day, it's a, there's a kinship there. Um, and, you know, we talk about the, the Army-Navy football game. Uh, you know, everybody gives it to each other before the game. At the end of the day, 
it doesn't matter who wins because America wins. Because all of these men that are on that field that are playing this beloved tradition of football, we know that each and every one of them uh, in a in a, in a matter of one year or two years or three years are going to be serving our country and standing on the front lines together. And I think that is the beautiful thing about what the military represents, that you can have this collective group of individuals that come from all different backgrounds, all different um, socioeconomic status, uh, diversity, and they come together and they can accomplish a mission together. They can put all their differences aside to get behind a common goal. And I often think, how can we take this idea of this awesome experiment that is the military, and how can we push that out to the rest of the country? You know? Yeah. No, I I I, I agree with you, and I've been I, I've tried to partner, and I partnered with uh, people like General McChrystal and others that believe in this national call for service, and, and Mayor Pete Buttigieg uh, has called for it too. I was a big big fan of you know, the ideas that he had when he ran for president on this national call for service and to your point, not just military service, but you know, service to your community or your country or to the world. So in a military service or Teach for America or AmeriCorps program or Peace Corps overseas, I mean, those programs are incredible. And there are other countries that do have that compulsory service like Israel and others that, you know, you look at the stats, they're more likely to vote, they're more likely to be citizens when they come out, they're more likely to be, have that entrepreneurial spirit because they have this common bond with each other, so uh, I'm a big believer in it. But and at a point of, you know, every year, you know, we, about 12% of the of the military forces are are officers. Uh, but there's three ways to get it: through the military academies, through ROTC, or through what we call uh, OCS, or Officer Candidate School. But you know, these are these incredible. You know, no matter which way you become one, they're they're the military. It's this great leadership lab, and specifically in the military academies, they're they're it's like Athens and Sparta. So when I look at West Point. You know, there's 4,000, you know, college athletes, frankly, because every cadet at West Point, just like every midshipman at the Naval Academy or every airman at the Air Force Academy or Coast Guard Academy, et cetera, you know, you have to play a sport, whether it's a Division One sport or a club sport or intramurals, you know, you're encouraged. And, and, but they also harness this great scholarly academics. I mean, we have, uh, we're always in a top 10 in Rhodes Scholars and Marshall Scholars etc. And and that's incredibly important as well. And, you know, to, your, to the point of your of your brother, listen, he was a great uh, high school athlete, you know, at LaSalle College High School, uh, you know, in our re, in our area, like in specifically Montgomery County. And, and, you know, he's a high school wrestler and did a lot of sports and, and then, but did great academically. He could have went to any Division One school, but he wanted to go to Naval Academy and he wanted to follow his dad's footsteps and become a Marine officer. And he did it. And, you know, he deployed twice. And, and, you know, he's part of that warrior class in America. And I, I think, um, you know, I think we just, there are folks, this younger generation, and, I, and it, it ticks me off when people want to, you know, bust the chops of the 9-11 generation or, or the young Americans today. They actually want to serve. They want to give community service. They want to figure out a way, but we have to tap into that willingness and that desire to serve and give them an opportunity uh, to serve and, and put the, you know, initiatives in place, whether, and again, whether it's military service or Teach for America uh, or the Peace Corps. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, I see that every day when I, you hear 
you know, you can be inundated on social media with just like, oh, these, this Gen X, they're not doing anything. They're so different than what it was like when we were growing up. I mean, I have the incredible opportunity through the Travis Manning Foundation to see every day, like, no, that's, that's actually not the case. Like we have an incredible group of youth that are out there that, like you say, we just need to give them the opportunity and I'm inspired every day by these young people, how they're getting out, how they're building up their communities and really leading the charge on what it looks like to come together. Um, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit. You, you touched on it. You said, you know, you're in Iraq and you're starting to see things in Stars and Stripes and and you're questioning what's happening in Washington. And I know my brother felt the same way. One of the things that my brother called my dad right when when President Bush, the night President Bush made his address about the surge and he called my dad and he wanted to speak about it. And um, my dad always recounts the story and it was the last conversation that they had. And Travis said to my dad, you know, we're over here fighting in the streets and the things that I see from these men and women that they're doing every day are incredible. Uh, incredible acts of heroism, of service. And he said, and I just don't think that the rest of America even understands or knows. And so I don't think you were alone in having that feeling of that disconnectedness between, you know, what was happening here, what was happening in, in DC, and then what you guys, your men and women were doing on the ground. But you took it an extra step. You come home and you decide, I'm back and I, I want to be a part of the process. I'm going to step into the arena. And you decide to run for Congress. So tell us a little bit about how that comes to be. Because I think there, I think people would like to learn about how they someone just decides to run for Congress. What does that process look like? Yeah. Well, I, I help other veterans run now, both Democrats and Republicans, through the Veterans Campaign. It's a nonpartisan nonprofit to the University of San Francisco. And they, we teach them. But for me, and I, I kind of tell people, don't do what I did because I, I didn't know better. I mean, I read books about how to win campaigns and I had followed it. But um, to me, I was just passionate. You know, I had lost 19 of my brothers uh, in Iraq. And, and so, you know, for me, you know, even the ones that came home with me and came home from our unit, you know, we, we did lose them when they came home too. Uh, you know, it's tragic that we have 20 of our brothers and sisters uh, that take their own life every day. It's an epidemic in our veterans community and, and there's a lot more that we need to do. But for me, it was um, kind of to your brother's point out of the Bible uh, and, and, you know, if not me, then who? And I felt like I have been given so much of my life that, you know, to be able to go teach at places like West Point and to deploy twice and to be a lawyer and, you know, to follow politics and you know, I was an unaffiliated voter at the time. I wasn't registered either party. It was independent. So, um, you know, when I did decide to run, um, it was, you know, my home district, uh, which covered Northeast Philadelphia and Bucks County and a small slice of Montgomery County. And, uh, and when I ran, a lot of folks, you know, never gave me a chance. And I had a tough primary and then a very really tough general to beat an incumbent. But for me, it was, um, it was, it was for my brothers and sisters. It was for those who I felt like, you know, didn't have a voice in Washington because when you even look right now in 2020 and 2021, we had the least amount of veterans serving since before World War One. Um, it used to be four out of every five members of Congress were veterans, and now it's less than one out of every five. And so, I, I don't think it, you know every member of Congress should have to serve in the military at all. But I do think they have a unique perspective, especially because it's the Congress, the legislative branch, 
uh, enumerated by our U.S. Constitution. It's the Congress that declares wars, that decides whether or not we're going to put our young men and women in a harm's way. And then the president executes that. Uh, but it's Congress has that sacred responsibility uh, to our men and women. And not just to whether or not to send them in a harm's way. And, and, and our best tradition is that we are the basically uh, like a reluctant warrior as a nation. But also, more importantly, when they come home, we need members of Congress and folks in Washington, D.C., that understand we got to take care of these brothers and sisters. We got to take care of these young Americans because they've given up so much and they didn't have to. Uh, and they chose to do it for all of us. Uh, but we should never, ever turn our back on them. We should never leave any of them behind. And that's the ethic that we all believe in in the military. And I know you do too. Our military families uh, live every day by that ethic. And we need to make sure that we kind of honor them uh, when they do return. Absolutely. And so you run for Congress in 2006, tough primary, you run against an incumbent and not just any incumbent, but in a very popular incumbent. He was a popular incumbent in, in Bucks County and very well liked and respected congressman. And you win and you win that election. Um, you did it in some really cool ways. Number one, I think you really embraced the idea of grassroots campaigning uh, you knocked on 160,000 doors. Your campaign literally knocked on 160,000 doors. And that's something that can't be overlooked, this idea of just getting out there and talking to the voter. But a significant win, not only for you personally, but you became the first Iraq war veteran elected to Congress. And I can't agree with you more on this idea that we need men and women serving in our Congress that have also served our country. I am so passionate about that. Hence why I serve on the advisory board for With Honor, a bipartisan PAC that helps veterans on both sides get elected uh, to Congress. It, it's, it's important work. And it, and it provides, like you said, an important perspective that if you have not worn our nation's uniform, you don't have. So what does it look like as a young guy who all of a sudden, you know, you get wrapped up in this, you're like, I'm going to run, I'm going to, and, and the rigors of a campaign, it's like, you're in the moment. And then all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, I'm a congressman. Like I'm, I'm going to DC. What was that feeling like for you? Do you remember walking into, um, I don't know if it was the Rayborn building or wherever your office was. Do you remember walking in there and just, did you ever have that moment of like, oh my gosh, this is, this is real. Yeah. I mean, 2006 was a, was a crazy year. I mean, I ran for Congress and I, uh, you know, I just came back from Iraq a little bit ago. And then when I ran for Congress first, Ryan, I only had like $322 in my bank account because I just got a new job and, and I, I had got my first paycheck yet when I declared, but, uh, and my employer knew I was going to run, but I, it, this was in 05. And I said, it's not until next year. It's not until 06. Um, but it was a, you know, I just had my first child. So Maggie Murphy, who's now, uh, 14, uh, was just born after my election. And then, you know, I remember the day I was sworn in, you know, holding her in my arms on the, on the house floor and, you know, taking an oath uh, with her in my arms. And, and to me, she symbolized, um, the beauty of our country and the rebirth. And, you know, we, we don't want career politicians. We want folks who are, you know, in there for the right reasons and, and sometimes get in, get out and sometimes just make their mark. And, um, and I just, you know, it was just an awesome 
awesome responsibility and experience. I do remember being overwhelmed though when I took that oath to support and defend the Constitution uh, against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and that you know, being there and thinking to myself, I don't know if I'm going to be able to take an oath from two years from now if I'm going to be reelected or not, but I knew I was going to make those two years every day. Those two years count and and to fight. And it was my first years in Congress was under President Bush, and my next term I was reelected was under President Obama. But you know, getting there right away and, and then having my roommate who was a command sergeant major in the army, Tim Walls, who's now the governor of Minnesota, you know, we were going to orientation and we we're both talking about like, we didn't have a lot of money. We, we became roommates in this, you know, really small dingy apartment in, in Washington. But, you know, we both co-authored the post having GI bill uh, and president Bush signed it into law, which was a game changer. I mean, right now in American college universities, there's 1.1 million kids on the GI bill. Um, you know, that, that's been a game changer for military families and, and for our men and women in uniform. So like, th- like doing things like that was, was just an incredible experience. And then, you know, to represent the 700,000 people in Bucks County and, and like your family um, was an honor. And then, you know, it was an honor, but there was also, you know, so some tragedy around that. I mean, to lose someone like your brother, Travis, I was a few months in as a freshman congressman. I mean, that, that really shook our community uh, to its core and to see so many folks rally around your family and Travis's memory and his legacy uh, and to go and, and to really, uh, you know, make sure that his name was heard and people like Colby Umberall and who was an army ranger who was also killed around that time. I mean, but to see from that tragedy, this national movement of character and, you know, what the Travis Manning foundation is all about you know, how you're in high schools, teaching young Americans about character and why character does matter to do the community service projects across our country and across the globe. Like, that's what it's all about. Uh, that's the essence um, of, of an American uh, warrior. Yeah. Well, you know, and you're there and, and I got to imagine that that's super tough because you you leave Iraq and you basically just start running for Congress. You, you don't even have that kind of, down moments where you can just process, debrief, you know, transition, uh, relax, right? And and then next thing you know, you're in Congress, you lose 19 of your men while in Iraq, but now you're representing 700,000 people in a district. And along with my brother and Colby, there was there were several other men and women from our county who gave their lives in service during your time in Congress. And I have to imagine that's, um, you know, that that takes a toll on you as well. And so I want to dive into you do two years and um, and you're under the Bush administration and then you're running for reelection. Um, and in between that time, as you said, you know, Travis was killed and my family had really a decision point on what we were going to do next and how we were going to move forward. And my mom started the Travis Mannion Foundation um, and and that was full steam ahead from day one. And she took that on. And my dad and I, I remember having conversations saying, you know, this is really good for mom. This is a great way for her to channel her energy after the loss of her son. And my dad decides, and this is where we come into play in, in terms of how we actually met. And I always laugh because I, t- I tell you, a lot of people don't know this. They think we're connected because of the, the veteran space and the work we do together. But we met because my dad ran against you for Congress in 2008. And um, 
And I laugh about it now, but I think back to, you know, there were some interesting things happening at that time. And what happened is, you know, my dad believed on one strategy in Iraq. You believed on the other. And so you guys are running against each other. But it really, this race becomes a referendum on the Iraq war. And there was a lot of national spotlight put on it because of that fact. It's the only Iraq war veteran in Congress running against the father, uh, running against the father of a fallen Marine. And so, um, I mean, that was an intense time. And, um, and we were not friends at that time. We were, you know, we were running <laughs> against each other, but, but there were, there were moments during that campaign that brought levity to it. And you touched on your daughter, Maggie and holding Maggie when you took that oath and what she symbolized. And, you know, I had a daughter, Maggie as well, born in 2006, 14 years old. They're the same age. And I, I love watching your Maggie grow up and I'm watching my Maggie grow up. And, and I remember you and my dad were at a debate. It was down in Lower Bucks. I can't remember where it was. It might've been in one of the temples down in Lower Bucks. And you guys had definitely some lively and heated discussion during the debates as, as you naturally would. And there was one moment where Ma both of our Maggie's were, you know, two years old and both of them ran out and they were running around in front of you guys while you were debating. And, um, your wife went to grab Maggie and my mom's giving me the eye, like, what's she doing? And I go to grab my Maggie. But you said something like, look at these two little girls, Maggie and Maggie, you know, this is what it's all about. And it was little moments like that of levity that again, my dad was running against you, but I, I knew right away that regardless of the outcome of that election, America was going to win because there were two great patriots that, again, they believed in something a little bit different, but at the end, they, they were both going to get down to D.C. and they were going to lead with integrity. Um, and so I built a tremendous amount of respect for you during that campaign. And um, I think my whole family did. And, you know, like... Um, as soon as it was over, um, and I will give my dad a plug, though he lost to you, he received more votes than any Republican candidate in the state of Pennsylvania. So uh, Colonel Tom Mannion did quite well. Um, but Oh, he was tough. Yeah, it, listen, it was like the, the Colonel versus the captain. <laughs> it, was, it, was, uh, it was, that was a tough race. Uh, and what a heck of a re-election fight it, it was. Um, at, but it was, it was like, you know, when you when you're in office, most incumbents don't want to debate their challengers, their opponents. And you know, at the time, I was like only the third like, Democrat ever to represent Bucks County in over 200 years. And and but I, we debated eight times, and and <laughs> and it was this great debate and this great ideas. And 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 again, yeah, we we disagreed about you know the kind of the the way forward in Iraq. And I was focused on uh, I supported at the time Senator Obama, who's run for president in his primary, and then. The general election and, and so at that time obama and biden were talking about you know refocusing on afghanistan and bringing bin Laden to justice and, and, and then they executed on that but it was this debate and it was tense and sometimes your dad got angry at me and, and vice versa and, and but after it was over um you know i do think that we both had this great respect for each other and you know your dad has continued to serve our community and our country and and i've tried to as well and you know and you just pick your spots and, and things happen for a reason and and i will tell you you know when i was two years later i had a 
another re-election fight. And I remember being in church a Sunday before the election, and I never once prayed to win, and I still wouldn't. Like, you know, I just pray. I said, God, whatever your will is, uh, you know, let me be channel for what, what you want to happen. And um, there's always different ways to serve. And then, you know, for me to go BS, to go run the Army eventually was, was also an incredible experience. But I, I do love the fact that we have that history, Ryan, because, you know, these – People in America, you know, and I think the media is frankly couple of this. They want the drama. They want to be us to fight as Americans, left versus right, and they don't ever want to let up, even when the campaign's over. It's it's just an ending cycle. And listen, I, I'm a proud Democrat, and I believe in our principles, and and like you know, I've disagreed with with your dad, and sometimes I disagree with you. But the reality of it is, there's so much more that unifies us as a country. And if we can sometimes focus when it's not campaign season on the things that we can move the ball forward on behalf of our country and unify, we would be such better off uh, and um, as a nation and, and as communities. And and I think you do see it in places like Bucks County, which is purple. Yep. Uh, and, you know, I think people are tired uh, of the partisanship that's out there. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, I, I think I remember the first time that – we saw you after the election. I think it was that you saw my dad, at least. It was at the Union League. And I remember you walked up to my dad and you said, can I shake your hand? And my dad said, of course you can. And you guys shook hands. And it was like, from that moment on, it was like, yeah. Like, and and this is, this is how you move forward. Um, and I want to talk about something that meant so much to me when you talk about this idea of division and um, how frankly, are right now there's this overwhelming desire to pit people against each other, to pit one side against the other side. And there's something that you did for me that I'll never forget. And I think it's an important moment for you as uh, you are a Democratic congressman. You're very involved in the Democratic Party. Like, no one can deny that. But for those that don't know, I have served as the supervisor for my town, which is essentially a borough council, but the supervisor for my town of Doylestown, which is the county seat in Bucks County. I ran in 2012. It was a six-year term, term, and then I was up again for re-election. And I actually had a pretty um, tough competition running against me, and uh, I was being really tied to everything that was happening nationally. It was like, everything's happening nationally, and let's tie it back to Ryan Mannion as the Doylestown Township Supervisor. And I'm thinking, well, I'm just making sure that our town is kept safe, our roads are kept good, and that we have beautiful parks to um, to do things in with our families and that we keep taxes low. Like, those are my objectives. And local politics is a lot different than the national level. And I called you, and I was talking to you about the race, and I said, you know, I feel like people are trying to tie me to what's happening nationally in the division. But at the end of the day, like, I don't look at this campaign as a, from a Republican or a Democrat side. I look at it as just I'm Ryan Mannion. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. And I'm an active citizen in my community. And I want to do my part to help take care of the town that I love so much. And you said, well, listen, yeah. whatever I can do, I'll do it for you. And I'm like, okay. And I said, well, would you... Uh, would you actually get behind doing a mailer supporting me? And it was this, it was, I threw it out there and I was waiting for you to be like, well, that's a little too far. I can't, you know, and you said, absolutely. Without 
any sort of hesitation. And you put that mailer out for me that it was, you know, I'm Patrick Murphy. I'm your former Democratic congressman endorsing the Republican supervisor for uh, for Doylestown Township. And you did that. And I'll remember on election day, I was at election day and I was walking up. I was standing at the polls, working my butt off all day long. And people were coming up to me saying, you know, I'm a Democrat, but I got the mailer from Patrick Murphy. And if he believes in you, I believe in you. And it meant so much to me on so many levels because, number one, I know you took a lot of heat for that. Um, that was not something you, you said absolutely in, in that moment, but I'm sure afterwards you were like, oh, what did I just do? But at the end of the day, you got behind me because you believed in me as an individual, not me as a Republican or me as a Democrat. And um, I've told you this before, but that meant so much to me, and it really proved to me who you were and the character that you had, that you were willing to stand up for not some set of ideology, but really like the people that represent us and how important that is over everything else. Yeah, listen, we I don't just say we need more veterans and military family members, you know, running for political public service. Like I believe in it and I and I support it. And so this Ryan, you, you you've created this incredible national veteran service organization that is making a difference in so many lives. Uh, and our communities across America. And so, you know, when when you were asking me, it, to me, it's like character is how you are when nobody's looking. No one was privy to this phone conversation that we were having. But and 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 listen, I I, I follow politics. I knew you'd be in a tough race, um, and I didn't know your opponent, frankly. And, and so, but to me, it was I. But I knew you, and, and I saw how you've been and how you were, and 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 the difference you're making. And so for me, yeah, it was you know I knew I'd take heat. I took a lot of heat, uh, and locally and people said i'm benedict arnold and so it's like hey listen i put my country first period and i put my country first and i believe in people that i know can make move the needle and make our community and our country better and you know and you just can't have it as a talking point you got to live it and so to me that was an example of how i live my life every day or i tried to at least and you know i've been very proud of of your political public service uh, I know it's a, you know, it's a part of your life. It's, it's not your whole life. You're not consumed by the politics and, and, you know, and I'm not a creature of, of Washington. You know, when I was done serving in Congress, I, I came home uh, and frankly, I lived home even during Congress and, or when I was you know, running the, the army in the Pentagon. And to me, you know, we need leaders like that, that never forget where they come from, that are willing to put our community our country first and i remember that's what i actually wrote in your mallard uh you know when i endorsed you and i was proud i think what you went by like 16 votes uh, I did. but 16 you know votes. if i made a little difference that that makes me proud uh, and that, more importantly i'm just proud of, of the service you've given well i appreciate that so i want to get into a little bit of what you did um there were some important things that you championed for uh number one being uh your support of repealing don't ask don't tell and again, this was not, even from a Democrat perspective, this was not a, a popular opinion on for, for everyone. You know, it wasn't, oh, if you're a Democrat, you're for repealing, don't ask, don't tell. And, and that's what I've always loved about you. You've, you've, you step forward, not because it's the right time. It's like, oh, the, the, the tides are right. It's time for me to champion for this or endorse this person. You step forward when you believe it's the right time. And when you believe it's time to do something and you receive some backlash for that, but 
you also received tremendous praise because at the end of the day, you were one of the main people that helped to make sure that this was repealed. Tell us about that process a little bit and why it was so important to you to take a stand on something like this. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I'm a, and you always say, Kiss, keep it simple, stupid. And I always say the army used to talk to me when they made that acronym. But uh, to me, it's, it's really uh, clear. You either believe in equality or you don't. You're either willing to fight for it or you're not. And I'll never forget going to air assault school with the 101st Airborne Division. And, you know, you learn how to repel out of helicopters and do some, some cool things. And we just got done a 12-mile ruck march with, you know, 50-pound rucks. And, uh, and we're sitting there. And one of the great uh, other officers I was going through the course with, uh, who we graduated together, um, came out after that course uh, a few months later uh, out of the closet. And at that time, uh, under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, if you had a statement to say that you're gay or lesbian, and if an act, uh, instead of pictures of you in an act, or if you had a marriage certificate, it would automatically trigger you getting chaptered out of the military. And um, and I saw great leaders, and I'm teaching constitutional law at West Point. And, you know, and I remember thinking, this is the blueprint of our country, and we have certain core beliefs in our nation, justice, liberty, equality, the rule of law, separation of powers. Uh, you know, so I spent years of my life teaching, you know, this next generation, these next generation military leaders there. And to see Congress pass this law, don't ask, don't tell, and to see 13,000 of our brothers and sisters since it was passed get thrown out, not for misconduct. Again, if it's misconduct, whether you're gay or straight, whatever, yeah, we'll throw you out. But be, just because of who they loved and who they were as a person. Uh, so when I served in Congress, uh, I'll never forget, I was on the Armed Services Committee, and my subcommittee was the Personnel Subcommittee. So I had jurisdiction over this. And the the uh, person who, the member of Congress who had written that bill was Marty Meehan, and then it was Ellen Tauscher. And Ellen Tauscher, Congresswoman, was even to become the Under Secretary of State under Secretary Clinton, uh, under President Obama. Uh, and and when she was leaving, I said to her, I said, hey, ma'am, like, I, I would love to take on your legislation. I'll tweak a little bit, but would love to really quarterback this thing. And I think I could, you know, as an Iraq veteran, I think I could provide a unique, you know, voice to this. And we served on a committee. She saw me and she says, Patrick, you'd be awesome. Absolutely. And so then I went to Speaker Pelosi and, and, and same thing. And so I got to not to quarterback it. And, and to me, it was being aggressive about it and being in the press about it, talking to people, talking to colleagues, getting Republicans like Charlie Dent and, and so many others to, to vote for it. And um, and it was tough. I mean, there was members of Congress, you know, I was confronted once in the members gym by a, a older uh, member from Georgia and he, he got my face and told me I was going to have blood on my hands, that there was going to be uh, men who were killed in the military because of the Murphy Amendment, because of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And, uh, and he was inappropriately uh, trying to get, you know, under my skin. And I told him that I better back off. And we had some words, but we we got it done and then we got done in the senate and thank god we had other leaders uh step up and also fight for it like kirsten Gillibrand, the senator from new york uh jack reed uh people like harry reed that, that at that time was senate majority leader but the president of the united states spoke out in, in favor of it barack obama and his chairman of Georgia staff admiral mike mullen who's who's a personal hero of mine you know those folks you know jay johnson was a general counsel of the Department of Defense. There, there was this movement that we were all 
really truly fighting uh, for equality. And I, I'm proud of that moment. Um, and, you know, to me, uh, a lot of folks, you know, ask like, hey, well, did it cost your election? Because I lost that election election stuff. And, you know, who knows? But the reality of it is it's like judgment day is more important than your re-election. And you got to make the days count when when you're at that opportunity to serve, and, and you know, and whether that service is in Baghdad or Bosnia or in Congress or at the Pentagon. So yeah, we we passed it, and it helped usher in marriage equality, which I think is a very positive thing. And you know, my goddaughter is Katie Murphy, and she's a student at Penn State, and you know, she came out a few years ago as lesbian, and her girlfriend at Penn State are just great, you know, just just great young leaders. But to me, you know, I didn't even know. Someone in my family, you know, was was going to come out of the closet. But to me, it was simple. It shouldn't have to just apply to me personally or someone in my immediate family. It's it's are you standing up for the right things and the right principles and why? And so uh, that was a proud moment. Uh, and I think it really, uh, when you look at history, I'll, I'll never forget. I then left Congress and joined the board at West Point. And I remember we were there and. Uh, we had a little hearing and, and uh, one of the tactical officers, tactical officers was asked by a kind of conservative member of Congress and also on the board and said, how about this Stonehouse Hotel? Is, isn't this horrible, this implementing it? Isn't it like, it's it's a travesty, right? And then NCO said, hey, sir, let me tell you. He goes, I, I spent 20 years in the military. I'm here at West Point. And he goes, I was bracing for this collision, you know, of this new implementation of the repeal of Stonehouse Hotel. I thought it was going to be, you know, really traumatic. And he goes, sir, I have to tell you, it wasn't even a bug in a windshield. These young Americans, they don't care who you love. They don't care who you want to date. They they just want to make sure, uh, like our generation of warriors, can you get your job done? Uh, and whether that's, you know, at West Point or Naval Academy or Baghdad, you know, we all just want to do right and, and, and make our country proud. Yeah. And I, I think it, it gets back again to that great social experiment that, uh, the men and women serving in our military, they don't care your background. They don't care who you love. They don't care where you came from. They just care that you're going to have their back. And um, right. and I love that. Um, can I say something about that really quick? Can, do you mind? I'm sorry. Can I no, just another please do. Because, again, teaching at West Point, I love history. and uh, But a lot of the members of Congress would, you know, be like, well, Patrick, we can't do it now. We're in the middle of the Iraq-Afghanistan war. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm like. We desegregated the military during the middle of the Korean War under President Truman, he an executive order. And it was so unpopular because, again, half the country was still segregated. Half the country, you know, we still had at the time what was called colored water fountains and colored restaurants. And mm-hmm. African-Americans, black Americans couldn't go to certain restaurants or certain hotels. And President Truman said, in the middle of the Korean War, said, no, they all wear green. They all bleed red. We're, we are desegregating our military. And the Secretary of the Army resigned and the other generals resigned because it was so, you know, it was, they, they're like, Hey, well, it's not a social experiment and all this. And we're not a social experiment. You know, it, it, we have certain core beliefs and fundamental values, but and most important of that is this meritocracy of equality. And, you know, if you are willing to meet the standard and exceed the standard, you can do great things, but you got to do your job and you got to do it right. And you got to do it for the right reasons. Um, and, the underpinning of that is character and, and integrity and honor. And so, you know, we did that during the Korean War. We did that during the Iraq-Afghanistan War. And, you know, and it did help usher in a more perfect union when you talk about marriage equality and, and elsewhere. So, sorry, I just want to kind of just address that because to me, historically, knowing the history and being able to argue it. And then, by the way, for the 
other fiscal conservatives in Congress. They should say, by the way, not only is it the wrong thing to do to kick out 13,000 troops, it costs the American taxpayer $1.2 billion right. to train up these great young Americans, recruit them, train them, and then throw them out. So it was a, it was a problem moment, but I, sorry, I digress. I had to, to no, I'm glad you did. And, and you should be proud of it. I think, um, and I think it's just so funny again, you know, how history um, comes around and also how you can look back on things and, yeah, maybe that wasn't a popular, popular decision within uh, the eighth district at the time, you know. But at the end of the day, that's you weren't looking for what's going to keep me elected as a congressman. You were looking for what am I going to do and what decisions am I going to make that are the right decisions while I have my time here. And you know, this idea of seizing the day. And I always talk about, I always talk about when I talk about Travis and people always want to talk about what he did on April 29, 2007. Like, let's talk about that. And I'm like, no, no, no. Let's talk about what he did leading up to that day, the choices that he made. And one of the things I would say about Travis is that he was big in the little things. And because he was big in the little things, it made him even bigger in the big things. And I want to take a, a, a dive off of politics, of military service, of all that. And I want to talk about an event that happened to you in 2015 as you're coming home from D.C., from a, a veterans event in D.C., you like me, we um, and like Joe Biden, we all take the Amtrak down to D.C. It's uh, nice and easy, and you're on your way home, and you are on the train that derails in Philadelphia that kills six and injures uh, like 40-something individuals. Um, it was all over the news. It was a horrific crash, and I remember I'm going through Twitter, and I see you, like, tweeting, you know, I'm here, I'm okay, I'm helping others. And next thing you know, the next day, the newspapers come out, and there's Patrick Murphy pulling people out of that train and helping people out of that train. And I'll tell you, I was a little gun-shy to get back on an Amtrak for a while because that curve where you guys derailed, I've taken that curve many times, and, you know, I never, never even thought about something happening on an Amtrak train, and then... That happens. But I think, again, it speaks to these moments where you have to step up. And whether they're in a physical sense where you're stepping up and you're helping others in, a, in an accident or where you were stepping up to help people that, um, you know, through Don't Ask, Don't Tell or the work that you did serving in the Armed Forces Committee in Congress, you know, it's moments like that that define who you are as an individual. And um, I wasn't surprised of the role you played in that accident. But um, more, I thought about this idea of like, you're, you walk the walk and you talk the talk every single day. So of course, something like this happens and, and you're going to step up when you need to. Yeah. Well, thanks, Ryan. I appreciate that. That was a pretty traumatic event. And uh, I was very, very lucky. Uh, but it is in the little things, like you said. And um, I remember, like most veterans that came back and, you know, got involved in the political, you know, campaigns and ran for office. And, and then when I served in Congress, you know, doing things like I used to do P90X with Paul Ryan, who was the Speaker of the House at the time, and 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 other, you know, fellow members of Congress we used to do that. And then when I got out of Congress, I didn't have that repetition, and I joined CrossFit. And that morning of the crash, and before I joined CrossFit, or when I first started CrossFit, they have ropes, and I was climbing, and it was hard for me to climb ropes. And I'm like, man, I used to climb ropes all the time in the Army. And I was like, man, it's been a little while. And I, I, I could tell I was not in, you know, tip top shape anymore. 
And so the morning of the crash, I remember I couldn't climb up the whole rope at first, um, uh, all the way up to the ceiling. And within years, within a year, I was, you know, that morning of the crash, I had climbed up 21 times on the rope uh, in the what we call WAD, a workout of the day. Uh, and uh, and then I got on a 7 a.m. train because I worked out at 5 a.m. in the morning and then I, and I was on the 7 a.m. and I was on that 7 p.m. train back. And yeah, I was in D.C. and I was interviewing uh, the current uh, VA secretary, Bob McDonald, uh, who I'm a big fan of, uh, West Point graduate, et cetera. And, um, and it was for my NBC show. So I'm on the train coming back home. And I remember there was this midshipman and you see him in his uniform. We're you know, all loading up and he was getting in. Uh, and I, I sit in a cafe car and I was through work, but I saw him walk by and I'm like, Hey buddy. And he doesn't know who I am. and doesn't know I'm an Iraq vet or army guy, but I was like, Hey buddy. I was like, thanks for your service. You know, let me know if you want me to buy a beer later or something, you know, it's something along those lines and he goes, Oh, thanks. You know, I'll let you know, whatever. And, uh, and he was one of the folks that were killed that day, that night. Um, when our, you know, train, you know, was overturned and, and, you know, so many people were, were killed and injured. So, but I was lucky because, you know, Senator Tom Carper from, from Delaware is, was in the cafe cart next to me, the little bench, and uh, he had just gotten off of Wilmington. So I would have, I went head first into the, the, where you were sitting when we flipped over, and I was not the conscious, but uh, I was lucky I came to. When I came to, I checked my arms and legs, and, and uh, the ceiling at that time was the window, uh, the side window, and uh, I was able to just, frankly, I, I got up and pulled myself up and was able to punch out the window and uh, the emergency exit and, you know, got the guy up next to me and, and then we got the folks out and then the folks who couldn't get out just, just did what any other warrior in the military would do. I just applied a tourniquet to some folks and, and calm people down and, you know, it was just there. And um, I remember I joke cause I wasn't a political science major in college or journalism major. Um, but I, I'm there. I get people out. Finally, the, the firemen, kind of crashed through because it was down electrical wires, but they, they come through the roof and the windows and, and we're helping uh, help people. And my, my phone's in my pocket from the crash and I, I didn't even realize it. And, and it's like Rachel Maddow and uh, you know, and she's like, Patrick, you okay? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, are you on that crash? I, and I'm like, yeah, I just tweeted some magic. Yeah, I know. That's why I knew you were on there. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, she goes, can you go on live? And I'm like, uh, sure. I mean, I was literally at first still in the car, like, you know, and, <laughs> and, but we had first responders already there. And, and, um, so it, again, it was one of those moments. And I know when we were getting people and lift them up out through the window onto the roof so they could get down, uh, there was another Fort Bragg former soldier from the eighties that was there helping as well, who, who got severely injured, but the adrenaline at that time, he's able to get through it. Um, but, you know, we knew we were one of the lucky ones. Um, and, you know, I joked that I probably have nine lives. And I'm probably through seven of them to my deployments and Amtrak crashes, et cetera. But, you know, it is the little things and you just do what you can uh, when you can. Uh, and whether it was that conversation I had with you when you're running for office or the Amtrak crash or sometimes in Baghdad or in Bosnia when it was pretty hairy at times, you know, you just kind of do the right thing, uh, even when nobody's looking. Yeah. Well, you certainly do that. And again, I I hope that people can understand that people from different sides of the aisle can have true, meaningful friendships, can have uh, genuine respect, and can agree to disagree sometimes. But at the end of the day, I think 
what moves this country forward is our collective power to work together no matter what. And um, it's been it's been an honor to work on things with you that to serve our veteran community over the past several years. You know, outside of that that campaign in 2008, you've done a ton of things. Uh, been an incredible advocate for the Travis Mannion Foundation. It's something that um, it's something that we so gl- greatly appreciate. It's an honor to have your support for organization and. And again, I, I love working on stuff with you. So I hope there's much more of that to come. And I want to close today out like I close every episode and um, want to ask you one final question. And that is, what does living a resilient life look like for you? To me, living a resilient life is, is you know, getting everybody has setbacks. Everybody has challenges. And you got to figure out a way to get through them and, and to focus and overcoming those obstacles uh, because there's people that are counting on you. And, and you got to be able to make that difference and make a difference in people's lives. Uh, and you can only do that if you're willing to overcome. Um, nobody has an easy life. Everybody, as I mentioned, has challenges and has setbacks. I've had them. Um, you know, I, I, I joked with you earlier. I mean, I, I, I went, I applied to one college and it was King's College. You could play hockey with my older brother and I was rejected. And so I had to go to full time, you know, community college. and. And I loved it and, and made the dean's list and then went to, you know, earned a scholarship uh, at King's College and, and had a great four years there uh, being a leader. So, um, and then in the military, you know, serving in a uh, place like Germany and West Point, Fort Bragg and Fort Benning and Fort Knox and Germany and, and then two combat deployments. Like to me, uh, I've just been very blessed, but that resilient life is overcoming the challenges and those challenges that are in your everyday life that go through it and also the big things because those little things do make a big difference uh in people's lives and in your own life and so i think it's it's having this this basically unbreakable spirit uh that you are the the captain of your own ship and it's important for you to all of us to to recognize that and, and to overcome i love that overcoming obstacles not worrying about setbacks, but moving forward each and every day, moving forward. And the best line you said, being the captain of your own ship, we make the decisions on how we're going to move forward as individuals, as leaders, and how we're going to step up uh, during hard times and during easy times. And I think you have, Patrick, set an example for a person who doesn't take the easy way out. Um, Even when it's an unpopular, uh, you step forward ultimately leading by the idea of doing the right thing all the time. Patrick Murphy, thank you so much for joining us on The Resilient Life. This has been an awesome conversation. I'm so excited for everyone to hear it. Uh, Thanks to everyone for tuning in. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share The Resilient Life with your friends and family. Take care. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, everybody.